Uh, our text is in Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles is going to be a little bit to the left uh, of Psalms and Isaiah and so forth. So you're going to keep going. If you've hit First Chronicles, you'll know about where you are. So go ahead, get there in your Bibles. Uh, a story first. Uh, when I was 11, my dad started taking me to hike sections of the Appalachian Trail. And we would meet up with some family and friends. And we would basically do the same section over and over again, different directions. But it was still fun. We do about 60 miles in five days, and you get a trail name. You know this if you go hiking. You get a trail name when you go hiking. My dad's trail name was Weezer. Uh, This name was not from the band Weezer and their song Island in the Sun or something like that. It was because he would sometimes wheeze uh, when hiking. Uh, My name, my trail name at 11 years old was Speedy, and I thought that that fit. Now, comparatively to the 40-year-olds I was hiking with, it certainly did fit. But it sounded good to me. I thought, I'm good at sports, I'm quick, and I thought, I'm pretty quick with my cleverness too, or so I thought. And then I got married. And several months ago, Caitlin, my beautiful wife, uh, she said to me, you know what? You're kind of (laughs) slow. I said, slow? (laughs) What do you mean slow? Like, how can this be a good thing? Slow only means a bad thing. And she said, not slow in a bad way, just like, you know, like, you take your time, you're kind of slow. Leslie Newbegin, the British missionary, pastor, apologist, and theologian, he says this in his book, Proper Confidence. We can discuss an absent person in a manner that leaves us in full control of the discussion. But if the person comes into the room, we must either break off the discussion or change into a different mode of talking. If the idea of the good or God has actually entered the room and spoken We have to stop our former discussion and listen. Instead of asking all the questions, we must now answer the questions put by the other. In other words, either God has spoken and given us a revelation or revealing of how we are to live, or he hasn't. If he hasn't entered the room, we may continue discussing him and our purpose in life, our likes and dislikes, who we are, however we wish. However, if God has spoken... And he has entered the room. We must stop our talking. We must humble ourselves and listen to what he has to say. Uh, this is how all relationships work. The original listeners of our text, Second Chronicles, if you're still getting there, I'm giving you a bit more time, uh, were a community of post-exilic Israelites who had known how Israel once listened to God as he created them in his image, delivered them from slavery in Egypt, but that they had spiraled down in idolatry through the time of the judges and the kings, through the dividing of the kingdom in 1 Kings 12, the fall of the northern kingdom of Samaria in 722 B.C., and the southern kingdom of Judah, 586 B.C. Babylon and Assyria removed them from inhabiting the place, the promised land that God had taken them, and took them into what is called exile. Later, a king named Cyrus would let them return to begin rebuilding the temple, And that's how we know where our listeners are. They're this post-exilic community. They're not where they once were. Chronicles was written uh, roughly 150 years after the end of 2 Kings was written. And while we know, if we've been doing the Bible reading plan especially, Chronicles contains a lot of the same information, roughly 50% of the same information in 1 Samuel, 1 2 Kings, it was written with a distinct purpose for people who are looking for hope. A first Chronicles starts with nine chapters of genealogies of the Israelites' story. It begins with Adam. 
That's not how 1 Samuel starts. It begins with Adam. It's a leading emphasis. Its leading emphasis is the line of David and the covenant promise made to David in 1 Chronicles 17 that one of his sons would have a kingdom established and his throne forever. And so our story of Josiah that we get to look at this morning is a micro story of the macro story of God's covenant faithfulness through the line of David. The original listeners needed this story for hope to know where they came from. And we do too. A C. John Collins uh, says that the purpose of Chronicles for its first listeners was this, that we are a continuation of those who came before. God is giving us a chance to get things right. Let's take it. Uh, the problem in view in our passage that we'll look at is the sins of the fathers. Uh, for 57 years, Judah has been a kingdom of corruption where its leaders and kings did not keep the word of the Lord. And so King Josiah finds himself confronted by a person everyone has been talking about who has finally entered the room. You might say that God has entered the chat. The chronicler shows the original listeners that it's not Josiah's fault, though, that God's wrath is to be poured out, but because of those who came before him, because of the sins of their fathers. We have to know where we've come from. Uh, They had lost the word of the Lord. Whether this was from negligence because of their idolatry or because of purposeful suppression because it confronted them and how they were living. Either way, it was lost. Uh, A couple things to note before we get into our text still. Uh, When we read about the house of the Lord um, and that it's talking about, uh, when we read about the house of the Lord, it's talking about the temple. Another thing is the book of the law will mean either Deuteronomy, which we've read, or some portion of the Torah, which is the same word for law. Torah is the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament. And in the Torah, why this is so significant when it comes up is that there were stipulations for the covenant that they had, that they would be God's people and he would be their God. And if they did not obey, if they didn't uphold their end of the marriage of the contract of the covenant, there were certain punishments. But if they did obey, if they were faithful, there were blessings that came. Uh, Wrath is going to be mentioned too. Uh, For some of us, this talk of wrath will be difficult. Uh, We live in such comfort that we find it hard to see the goodness of a God who also has wrath. Uh, So let me suggest uh, two things to you about this. Uh, First, it's actually good that you are bothered by wrath. It's good that it stands out to you, that you're not apathetic to the reality that these are real people who are experiencing real judgment and wrath. So that's a good thing. That should shock us. Second, God's wrath is by definition of who God is, uh, not arbitrary or unjust. The Israelites were in a covenant, like a marriage, uh, with God to be his people. Uh, His wrath is like the anger of a spouse who cares for their spouse, but is also jealous for the commitment required in a marriage. Uh, So when the text speaks of other gods, it's akin to sleeping around to someone you're not married with. Uh, Let me add one more thing. It's good, again, if you're bothered by wrath. Uh, But I want to ask you as well, are you equally bothered uh, by infidelity and broken commitments without consequences? Uh, So just something to think about for some of us. Uh, Just because something is normal today does not make it good. Uh, One last thing, there are many details in this passage that we're about to hear. It's a big chunk, 
lots of names and places about a building project, uh, but don't zone out as we read this together. Uh, The details, like a movie by Wes Anderson, are where the story is. So now we're at our text, 2 Chronicles 34, starting in verse 8. Now in the 18th year of the reign, when he had cleansed the land and the house, he sent Shaphan the son of Azaliah and Masaiah, the governor of the city, and Joah the son of Joaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. They came to Hilkiah the high priest and gave him the money that had been brought into the house of God, which the Levites, the keepers of the threshold, had collected from Manasseh and Ephraim and from all the remnant of Israel and from all Judah and Benjamin and from the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And they gave it to the workmen who were working in the house of the Lord. And the workmen who were working in the house of the Lord gave it for repairing and restoring the house. They gave it to the carpenters and the builders to buy quarried stone and timber for binders and beams for the buildings that the kings of Judah had let go to ruin. And the men did the work faithfully. Over them were set Jahath and Obadiah, the Levites, and the sons of Moriah, and Zechariah, and Meshulam, and the sons of Kolothites, to have oversights. The Levites, all who were skillful of instruments of music, were over the burden bearers and directed all who did work in every kind of service. And some of the Levites were scribes and officials and gatekeepers. While they were bringing out the money that had been brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord, given through Moses. Then Hilkiah answered and said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law of the Lord and the house of of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan. Shaphan brought the book to the king and further reported to the king all that was committed to your servants they are doing. They have emptied out the money that was found in the house of the Lord and have given it into the hand of the overseers and the workmen. Then Shaphan, the secretary, told the king, this is is, uh, Josiah, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book, and Shaphan read from it before the king. Remember, it had been lost. And what happens? 19. And when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah, Ahiakim, the son of Shaphan, Abdon, the son of Micah, Shaphan, the secretary, and Isaiah, the king's servant, saying, Go inquire the Lord for me, and for those who are left in Israel and Judah, concerning the words of the book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us, because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. So Hilkiah and those whom the king had sent went to hold of the prophetess, the wife of Shalem, the son of Tokath, son of Hazra, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter and spoke to her to that effect. And she said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, tell the man who sent you to me. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants. All the curses that are written in the book that was read before the king of Judah, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands, before, therefore my wrath will be poured out on this place, and, I will, and it will not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was tender. And you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and its inhabitants. And you have humbled yourself before me and have torn your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Behold, I will gather you to your fathers and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. And your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place and its inhabitants. And they brought back word to the king. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me, please. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would teach us this morning what this story teaches us about God, about us as people who are the continuation of these events, about their place and our place. Oh God, would your Holy Spirit be our tutor this morning? Would you wake us up to this word and what this story exposes about our own response to these things, like and unlike the response that Josiah has and the Israelites have. And all God's people said, Amen. So our question that we'll be following and and trying to figure out as we look through this passage is this. What does a confrontation with God's truth look like? What does a confrontation with God's truth look like when we're confronted with God's truth, when he enters the room? So we'll have four scenes or You can think of it kind of like a movie. Four scenes that we'll be looking at. And so the first one is the people restore the house of the Lord. Here's the first scene. And we're asking ourselves, what does a confrontation with God's truth look like? Uh, Our text began this morning in verse 8. When he had cleansed the land and the house. And so we ask, why did Josiah have to clean the land and the house of God? Because the kings of Judah, as we saw in verse 11, had let it go to ruin. A Josiah's dad, a chapter before, is called an evil king. Uh, he specifically did not humble himself before the Lord. Not only that, but the people conspired to kill Josiah's dad, and they did so. He was so wicked that the people would rather have an eight-year-old. Just imagine the absurdity of that. The people were so mad. At the wickedness of this king, they would rather have an eight-year-old in charge of their entire kingdom than listen to this guy anymore. That is wild. That is absolutely crazy. But that's what happened. And so Josiah, at the age of eight, becomes king over Judah, and he realizes this, and he seeks the Lord. Uh, When he's still a teenager, our text says that he sends uh, his royal cabinet to go and fix the house of the Lord. There's uh, over 13 different jobs mentioned in our reading. Uh, There's a governor and a recorder and a high priest and workmen and builders and gatekeepers and more. Ordinary people and people in high positions. Uh, And there are over 22 different people mentioned specifically. Uh, Do we get a sense of how wild, how how magnificent the magnitude of this project is? Uh, This was not a situation of who is qualified or who has a degree or prefers a certain type of work. Uh, The place had gone to such ruin over 57 years because of those who came before them. And now everyone, not just the big, strong uh, builders, uh, but everyone from writers and musicians were working together as a community to to restore the house of the Lord. Uh, Look back in your text at verse 9. Middle of verse 9. The remnant of Israel and all Judah and Benjamin and from the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Uh, the post exilic community, remember Chronicles is not just rehashing everything that happened. Uh, they're given this beautiful boost of hope from the chronicler that God has always known who his people are, that he's not forgotten them even as they're trying to put the pieces back together. Uh, this remnant shows the listeners and us, that unity, restoration between the southern and northern 
uh, kingdoms is actually already taking place long before people thought it was. Uh, in July, uh, our, jun- our senior high youth group went to Chattanooga for a service trip. And we helped out in the community doing a lot of manual labor. And one of the things that we got to do is go to a person's house. And this person uh, had been hoarding things for who knows how long. And so their entire house was covered top to bottom with stuff. And so i got to be honest, I was very happy that other people volunteered to go to this house. I did not want to go and work on that. I mean, that would have been tough. And so Zach, one of our interns with a couple of eager eager, uh, high schoolers, went to this house, and they've got to clear everything out from top to bottom of this garage in the house, and lay it out into piles, and then the homeowner would come and look at each pile and say, let's keep that, let's get rid of this, let's throw that away, oh, that's still good. Uh, One of the students, Ben, actually got a tackle box and a new ratchet set out of it, so pretty cool for him. That was exciting. Uh, the first thing that we see about what a confrontation with God's truth looks like is this. Is that a confrontation with God's truth looks like figuring things out in community. It didn't get that way because of their stuff. It wasn't their stuff, the high schoolers. That was the community that they were placed in. And so they worked to repair and restore the house. The homeowner couldn't resolve the issue by themselves It had gotten too bad. They needed help. And just like the workers in verses 8 through 13, we see in verse 12, the men did the work faithfully. All of us here have family history that we're not proud of. We have family members that maybe we would like not to associate with. But the workers in this situation were from the northern and from the southern kingdoms. This is like people post-American Civil War War working together because they both realized how far off course from God's truth they had gone. Uh, the application here is not what's the thing that you need to restore in your life exactly. Instead, this is who we are. The application is that this is our family history. Uh, we can't act like just because we feel like we have things neat and tidy that our family history doesn't. And likewise, the opposite is true. We can't act like because things are so hard and disorganized or things have gone to such ruin in our lives that we have to fix it on our own. We need one another. And this is where we've been as the people of God. We ought to be shaped by the men who worked faithfully, organized and communicated, and didn't stop or abdicate because they're not the ones who were in charge when things went to ruin Uh, Secondly, we must see that it's a return to the proper order of God's truth that actually enables the community to work together. Uh, Some of us need to see this morning, or see again for myself, that God's grace for us is the community that he's put us in. I can't tell you how often uh, I hear, I don't know anyone, I have no friends, and those things are real, and those things are hard, and yet... Uh, The very community that God has placed us in is the grace that he's given us. No matter what the difficulties are, he gives us people. He gives us help. Some of us need to see that God gives us things. Uh, He gives us stuff. Uh, We see here that money, lots of money, is being collected for the restoration of the house from all over the place. From all over the place, they're collecting money. They use it and they give it to people to work and to build their stone and the timber. Uh, We need to see that God does actually provide for us. He gives us tangible, physical things 
to carry out the commands that he has given us. Uh, God is a good God, and the whole story of the Bible is that he never gives a command that he doesn't give a provision to meet that command with. And so like the Chronicler's first listeners, we too are to be filled with hope that things can indeed get better. Uh, But you must must know uh, that life is not always so simple. Sometimes we don't see things getting better. Life is difficult, and our actions do have consequences. We can make things better in community. Sometimes we see that. But the actions of those before us have consequences for us. What do we do when God's truth means that we still suffer from other people's choices? So let's look at our second scene here and see what we can find. Our second scene is Hilkiah finds the book of the law, verses 14 through 21. Look with me in verse 14. Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given through Moses. We'll jump to 16. Shaphan brought the book to the king and further reported to the king, all that was committed to your servants, they are doing. I'll go over to verse 18. Then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read from it before the king. And when the king heard it, heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. So I want you to imagine this with me. Everything is going great. I mean, they are like, they've come together. They've, they've surpassed uh, these insurmountable odds of reconciling their differences. They literally went to war with each other. And now they're working together. They're going, I trust you. Here's my money. Here's all my stuff. Like, let's work together. And everything's going great. Reform, restoration, rebuilding, working community, all of it's going well. And then, maybe, uh, you see the king listen to the truth of God's word, and he's tearing his clothes. You're like, everything's going great. That shouldn't be happening. That's a bad sign. I don't know about you guys. Like, that, that doesn't look like a good thing. And we know that in that day, tearing your clothes was a significant sign of despair, grief, and mourning, or like Mark said this morning, repentance. Uh, They didn't have thrift stores or t-shirts for $5, or maybe the lost and found in the youth building where you can just hope that nobody notices. I know some of you. Clothing was expensive and a cultural sign of grief. Think of how shocked you would be. I can imagine, the text doesn't say, but maybe someone like Zechariah is going about his job. Hey, builders, great work. Keep it up. Let's move this column over there. Keep it up. Let's go. And then he sees Shaphan's face from the distance. He looks like he's seen a ghost. Shaphan with Hilkiah, Ahiakim, Abdon, and Isaiah walking out with grim expressions from being with Josiah. We're imagining here, of course, the text doesn't say. But I wonder what it was like. Maybe he asked them and they explained. King Josiah told us, we see in verse 21, Go and inquire of the Lord for me and for those who are left in Israel and in Judah concerning the words of the book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us. Maybe Zechariah asked them, Why? What did we do? To which they continued, Because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. God has entered the room. He's entered our conversation. He cannot be ignored. We must now seek to put aside our questions and answer his. In John 1.14, we see that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. 
We see the same thing here. Uh, Grace, yes. Restoration, yes. But also truth. And so the second thing that we see is that a confrontation with God's truth, it looks like facing reality. It looks like facing reality. Uh, Some of us don't see God's truth, his word, like Josiah did. Uh, For some of us, whether it's because of skepticism uh, or our faith does not seem to be that strong, God's truth is on par with improbable, outdated, or even worse, morally backward ideas. Maybe you resonate with what a journalist, Keith Con Harris, says, writing for The Guardian, uh, not a Christian um, publication. In his essay, Denialism, What Drives People to Reject the Truth? Uh, this is the quote from him. Denialism is a post-enlightenment phenomenon. We'll explain this. Just stay with me. A reaction to the inconvenience of many of the findings of modern scholarship. The discovery of evolution, for example, is inconvenient to those committed to a literalist biblical account of creation. Denialism is also a reaction to the inconvenience of the moral consensus that emerged in the post-enlightenment world. In the ancient world, you could erect a monument proudly proclaiming that genocide you committed to the world. In the modern world, mass killing, starvation, environmental catastrophes can no longer be publicly legitimated. Uh, What the author is saying is this. Listen, uh, we've come so far along that to deny reality, it has to have a name, like denialism or something. Like, how can you say no to these truths that are so obvious? And he would go on, and there's a hint of it there in his example, uh, to say that people that hold to a Christian understanding of things, uh, they are an example of this that they hold on to these ancient truths that really they just blind themselves to the reality of modern advancements. That we just believe superstitious things because our ancestors did. Uh, But what I find so interesting about what this author says is it's the exact opposite of what we see happening in our text. Uh, The people had a tradition, they had a history of not following the Lord, of doing whatever they wanted to do. And it's not... Denial that happens when they're faced with truth, it's the opposite. When Josiah is faced with the truth, he changes his actions. He changes what he's doing. The chronicler writes to a post-exilic community who doesn't need things falsified. They record the good and the bad. I mean, this is our family history. They don't need things denied or sugar-coated. He tells them the truth, the events as they occurred. And because it's within that retelling of the original hearers, we're faced too, both with the embarrassment of our family story, the failure and the wickedness, and, because judgment is never the end of the story, how God worked through the confrontation of his truth, of his word. Josiah rather does what we see C.S. Lewis describe in his essay called Meditations in a Tool Shed. Here's what he says. I was standing today in the dark tool shed. The sun was shining outside, and through the cracks of the top of the door, uh, there came a sunbeam. From where I stood, that beam of light, with the specks of dust floating in it, was the most striking thing in the place. Everything else was almost pitch black. I was seeing the beam, not seeing things by it. Then I moved, so that the beam fell on my eyes. Instantly, the whole previous picture vanished. I saw no tool shed, and above all, no beam. Instead, I saw, framed in the irregular cranny at the top of the door, green leaves moving 
on the branches of a tree outside. And beyond that, 90-odd million miles away, the sun. Looking along the beam and looking at the beam are very different experiences. Here is the situation for us, brothers and sisters. Most of us have grown up in a church context of some sort, and we praise Jesus for his faithfulness in that. I'm not disparaging that. But some of us, perhaps not all of us, we experience cognitive dissonance where our beliefs and our experiences seem to conflict with each other in our understanding of faith. And we find ourselves agreeing more maybe with the first writer, that of the guardian, than of the second, that of Lewis. Uh, You have or do find yourself responding to stories like this the story of Josiah, maybe as if they're fables, and at best give moral guidelines, and at worst lead to denial of reality. Uh, I would love to talk with you more and listen to uh, your journey in all of this. Uh, may I suggest something to you? You knew that I would, so I'm going to. Uh, it's how we began this morning. Uh, if we're having a conversation about someone, and that someone steps into the room, won't the conversation change in some way? Uh, Josiah was no bum. Uh, He was no backward, uh, dumb person uh, living like a nomad under rocks or something like that. We've got to get that picture out of our mind. Uh, He was trained in royal education. He could read when the majority of the people couldn't. He had over 22 people reporting to him. And some of them, uh, some of those same people may have been the people who assassinated or conspired to assassinate his father. I mean, he had to have some wits about him. How would he navigate this? That would take some nerve to serve the kid of the guy you hated. So Josiah is no bum. Maybe he wasn't dumb in his leadership. Maybe what we heard read in the book, maybe what he heard read in the book of the law was real. Maybe God's truth was real. Could it be that this is the man who was confronted with the truth of God's word? Uh, For others of us, trusting God's word to be true is a no-brainer. We have wrestled with these things already. Uh, We have a Bible verse memorized, and we sing worship songs in the car, maybe. Uh, But maybe we, too, are missing the reality of God's truth and how it confronts our lives. Maybe we, too, are missing the reality of God's truth and how it confronts our lives. Are we like a person who looks at a beam of light, light, like Lewis describes, and decides that we understand how it works? That we know all there is to know about it? Or are we like the person who steps into the beam of light and by the beam of light experience living in reality according to God's word? Do you just look at God's word? Do you just look at church and Christianity and say, that seems to be good, it's good for my family, I was raised that way, it seems to be a pretty good guideline? Are you just looking along it? Or do you step into it? Do you step into experiencing and seeing everything by God's truth? Jesus is the incarnation of God. He is full, John tells us, full of grace and truth. So being confronted with God's truth looks like facing reality. Uh, But we might ask, why does that matter? Wrath was a thing of the past. Jesus doesn't pour out wrath, does he? Uh, Let's go to our third scene. Uh, This is Huldah prophesies disaster, verses 22 through 28. Let's see what happens next. Hilkiah and the others that King Josiah sent to inquire of the Lord concerning the wrath that the Lord is going to pour out because of the sins of the fathers for not keeping the word of the Lord come to 
Huldah the prophetess. They explain the situation to her, and she prophesies. Verse 23. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, tell the man who sent you to me. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants, all the curses that are written in the book that was read before the king of Judah, because they have forsaken me and made offerings to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be poured out on this place and will not be quenched. But to the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have, zoom in here, heard, Josiah heard the words of the Lord, because your heart was tender, not a heart of stone, and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words again against this place and its inhabitants, you have humbled yourself before me, and you have torn your clothes and went before me. And this is Josiah's, uh, this is what Josiah hears as God's response. Listen to the beauty of this relationship. I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, or shalom, wholeness. And your eyes shall not see all the disasters that I will bring upon this place and its inhabitants. And they brought back word to the king. So Hilkiah and all the rest returned to King Judah, the king of Judah, and report to him what Huldah prophesied from the Lord. Uh, what's happening here? I notice the words disaster, curses, and wrath. These are words of judgment. Notice the particularities of where and who they are directed for. This place, its inhabitants. This is sad. Uh, this is scary. This is not how we typically think about God, is it? He forgave us of our iniquities as far as the east is from the west, or maybe we should say from the northern kingdom to the southern kingdom. But judgment still comes in some way. It comes to the land and its inhabitants. Actions have consequences. Uh, the background of what's going on here is that there's different prophets that are existing at the same time of the events that we're looking at. Uh, Jeremiah is one of those prophets, and he prophesied on behalf of the Lord that judgment would come. Uh, God specifically tells him, uh, you won't intercede for the people like Moses interceded for the people. Uh, their sin has become too great. This is what must happen. They must be removed. They must go into exile. But there will be hope. They will be restored. And so we see that God holds his people to a higher standard than other people. His covenant promises may have many blessings with faith and obedience. But unbelief, negligence, straight up idolatry, these are what the chronicler calls forsaken. An offering to other gods receives judgment. This is a hard reality of our past, but we must continue to face reality. Like Josiah, we must let the word of the Lord confront us and point us to reality, not denial, not abdicating. A negligence to obey God's commandments has consequences generations down the line. Uh, you know this if you've ever inherited anything, or maybe if you haven't inherited anything. Jeremiah prophesied that this would happen, and it does happen. They get taken into captivity. The chroniclers, original listeners, their audience, they knew that these things happened. But the heart of God is good. Judgment is never the end of the story. After the flood, he promised in his covenant with Noah to never destroy the earth again by flood. Well, in his covenant with David, he promised to establish a throne forever. And a son from the house of David would be king. We get a glimpse of Josiah experiencing that in a relationship. Notice in verses 26 and 27. 
God says that because Josiah heard, that is Shema, so not just listening, but hearing deeply the words of the law, Lord, because his heart was tender and humbled when he again heard Shema, the word of the Lord, so God says that he has heard Shema, Josiah, and will give him peace with his fathers in death. So judgment is still coming, but also mercy. And his covenant faithfulness remains. The Lord is not mute or deaf. He confronts with his word, both written and at the, that time through prophets, and he hears us. Jesus says in Matthew eleven fifteen, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Uh, one day a son would come from the house of David. This person would be Jesus. Uh, he would live correctly. He wouldn't turn to the left or the right. He wouldn't be an evil king. And he would take on the punishment that was due to these people. He would say, I'll take it. I'll take all of it. And he resurrects from the dead. And he sits at the right hand of God the Father right now. So our third answer is this. A confrontation with God's truth looks like both judgment and mercy. Josiah humbled himself. His grandfather and father distinctly did not humble themselves. Amon, his father, grew in more and more weakness as a result of his continued pride. Josiah humbled himself not out of a vain attempt at manipulating God, as many of us maybe do. He didn't show false regret or false tears because one is merely finding it inconvenient that they have been caught. No, Josiah humbled himself when faced with God's truth because he knows that no matter how well he's been loving God, there's a vast difference between our holy God and how sinful our hearts are. Did Josiah know, like the psalmist in Psalm 51, 17, that a broken and contrite heart the Lord will not despise? I don't know. Maybe. Like the original listeners, they would be filled with some hope at King Josiah's obedience from his humble and tender heart, yet they too would know that kings after him failed. There's four more kings after Josiah, and they all fail. They, they all screw it up. And it's sad. There needs to be a true and better king. For some of us, we know that God hears, but maybe are too prideful to seek him. Other of us, others of us know that God hears and go to him often, uh, but there is no humility in our heart. And our hearts are hard wanting him to just give us a rubber stamp of approval, of forgiveness, of whatever it is. Others of us are unsure of God hearing us, not because our hearts are hard, but because we are weak in our faith. We have been beaten down by the consequences of the world that we live in. How can we be sure that he hears? What does it feel like, some of us ask? How do I tell the difference between my thoughts and who God is? The answer to that, my friends, is both I feel you and get into God's written word. He shows us who he is by the Holy Spirit who agrees with his written word in us. Our God is a God of order, not chaos, peace, not fear. So if the voice that you're hearing is in Scripture, if the voice you're hearing is order, if it's peace, uh, you can look to Scripture and the Holy Spirit will confirm with you that that is the Lord. But if it's not, then maybe no. Lastly, some of us want to believe that God hears our prayers, but we have a complicated past with prayer. Uh, I get that. And in some ways, I believe that's a common experience of many Christians over time. 
It's helpful then that Jesus gives us a template for how to pray. He's given us community too. Uh, Sometimes the prayers of others help me the most. I remember a time when all I could pray was help me, and at other times just help uh, and thank God he hears those prayers. Uh, What do we do when we realize we can't reverse the consequences of those before us? Here's our last scene. Scene four. Josiah leads revival in the land, verses 29 through 33. Then the king sent and gathered together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem, and the king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the Levites and all the people, both great and small. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. Then he made all who were present in Jerusalem and in Benjamin join in it. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. And Josiah took away all the abominations from all the territory that belonged to the people of Israel and made all who were present in Israel serve the Lord their God all his days. They did not turn away from following the Lord, the God of their fathers. So Josiah does what's right in the eyes of the Lord, and it culminates in a renewal or a revival, actually. Uh, the Passover feast is reinstated, uh, even because Joshua, jo- Josiah cannot reverse consequences by the sins of his forefathers. Uh, what does he choose to do? Does he say, well, forget it. Like, if I can't change anything, what was the point of my repentance? No, instead, he still chooses to live rightly. Uh, they've come a long way. The chronicler's the chronicler is writing to this community. They've come a long way, and now they're at a crossroad. What will they do? Will they choose to live rightly? Unfortunately, we know the rest of Chronicles. We know what happens. But we also know that they need true heart change. I love what it says at the end. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. That's the same idea that we see with Jesus as the great commandment. Josiah, we get this glimpse in Josiah of him starting to do this. Uh, For VBS this summer, I got to help uh, lead a memory verse. And the memory verse uh, was about how uh, Jesus um, came to bring life, that he was the resurrection and the life. And though we die, if we believe in him, we will have life. And so I had uh, two of the little fourth grader girls come up and be Mary and Martha, and one of the fourth grade guys come up and be Lazarus, so he got a fun job just to lay there dead. Uh, And then another fourth grade guy to come up and act as Jesus. And they described what happened, how, you know, Lazarus was raised from the dead, and they got to interact with that and and do that. They did a great job. Uh, The problem for us is this, is that even if revival did break out right now, Uh, we would still have to stop to use the bathroom. Uh, The things that Jesus did are called signs because they point to something greater. Uh, We are to obey God and his will with our whole heart and our whole soul and our whole mind. Uh, This is the greatest commandment, not seeking after merely revival or merely a sign or miracle. Our hope is in Jesus, not in a movement. The teacher in Ecclesiastes tells us that a generation comes and a generation goes, but the sun returns to where it began. 
Uh, This place, brothers and sisters, is not our final resting place. We live in the now, obeying Jesus because it prepares us for where we are going. Full restoration of heaven and earth. Our fourth answer is this. Confronting, being confronted with God's truth looks like obeying God from all of our heart and all of our soul. So if healing isn't heaven, even with revival happening like in Josiah's life or Lazarus being resurrected, if it isn't heaven and revival isn't the restoration of all things, uh, what's the point in trying? Here's the point. Because once you've had the real thing, though you grow hungry again, Though your body ages and your memory slows, it's better to practice for eternity than practice for what is momentary. Later, Josiah goes on to reinstate the Passover, our Lord's Supper that we'll take here in a moment. It's a continuation of that. We are here because of those who came before us. What does a confrontation of God's truth look like? It looks like figuring things out in community, facing reality. It looks like judgment and mercy. It looks like obeying God from all of our heart, soul, and mind. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we pray that you would keep these things in our heart, that we are a continuation of those things and the people that came before us, Lord. Lead us, God, to face your truth as it confronts us, that you have entered the room, and so therefore our lives must change. Let us not abdicate because of those that came before us, but live with faith and work heartedly. Amen.